please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and in some cases offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very, very adult content ahead, and you have been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I'm your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, you may experience a sense of deja vu. Harkening you back to the very first episode of this podcast about the Diet Love Pass incident. As many of you will recall, the Diet Love Pass incident is a tangled, twisted tale that had no easy answer. And as one of our dear listeners already knows, there are many, many, many more stories just like that one. That's right, my heathens, we have another listener request. And this time, it's a bit of an obscure story that I had to dig about. I had never heard it before, but I'll be honest with you in doing the research, it does bear some very striking similarities to the Diet Love Pass story, so I hope you enjoy it. It's five young men who were in the prime of life who disappeared and wind up dead, leaving more questions than answers. But before we get into all of that, that's right, we will be playing our drinking game. But again, the drinking game is only for those of you that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. And since today's episode is set in the beautiful 1970s, I looked up some cocktails from this time era for you. Hey, it's about time something that the 70s makes a real comeback, so let's make it the drinks, right? Anyway, there's a link in the episode, so you will find the 1970s cocktails I've picked out for you. Now for the game part of it. Alright, well every time I say Chino, that will be a single shot. And every time I say trailer, that's going to be a double shot. And just a warning, I'm going to be saying them a lot tonight, so you guys are going to be very, very, very drunk by the end of the episode. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. When five young men never come back. Or the story of Nicole's love life. Oh, wait a minute. That wasn't funny. All right. Anyways, here we go. There was a half moon that night, a winter moon in a cloudless sky. Up in the mountains above the Feather River, the snowdrift sometimes rose to 15 feet. Ted Wire's grandmother said, You need to take a coat, watching him leave. Wire, however, said, Mom, Grandma, I'm not going to need a coat. Not tonight. Two hours before midnight, February 24, 1978, when the basketball game ended at the California State University at Chico, five young men from the flatlands, 50 miles to the south, climbed into a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego and drove out of the parking lot. 
They were fans of the visiting team, which had won the game. They stopped three blocks away at Bear's Market, mildly annoying the clerk who was trying to close up, and bought one Hostess cherry pie, one Langendorf lemon pie, one Snickers bar, one Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. Then they walked out of the store, got back into their car, drove south out of Chico, and disappeared. Ted Wire's grandmother woke up afraid at five the next morning. She really can't say what woke her up, except that maybe the Lord decided it was time to end her one last night of solid sleep. And she found Ted's bed was empty. The house was still, and it was not quite light, and this is how her horror began, as it often does. No crash, no wailing, just a dim morning chill in a small house on what ought to be an ordinary day. Imogene Wire got on the phone and called Bill Sterling's mother as fast as she could. Juanita Sterling had been up since 2 a.m. because Bill had not come home either, as she found out. Mrs. Sterling had already called Jack Madruga's mother. Jack had also not come home. Mrs. Wire called Jackie Hewitt's mother, and Mrs. Wire's daughter-in-law walked down the street to talk to Gary Mathias's stepfather. All five of these young men had vanished. By eight that evening, Miss Madruga called the police, because the boys had never done such a thing before. They were men, really, not boys. Hewitt was the, the youngest at 24, Wire was 32, but their families called them boys, our boys. They lived at home. Three of the five had been diagnosed retarded. Madruga, although undiagnosed, according to his mother, was generally thought of as slow. And Matthias? Well, he was under drug treatment for schizophrenia, a psychotic depression that first appeared five years before, and that his doctor says had not resurfaced in the past two years. They were supposed to play a basketball game of their own on February 25th, part of a tournament, with a free week in Los Angeles if they won. Their clothes had been laid out the evening of the 24th before they even left for Chico. Each had a beige t-shirt, the words Gateway Gators, emblazoned across the chest from the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center for the Handicapped, where they all played basketball together. Wire had asked his grandmother to wash his new white high-top sneakers for the tournament. He had scuffed them when he was trying them out. Matthias had just about driven his mother crazy with the game. We've got a big game on Saturday, he kept saying. Don't you dare let me oversleep. He was very excited for the game. Saturday came and went, and no word from the boys. The police began to take interest. On Tuesday, February 28th, they found Madruga's Mercury, and from that day on, nothing they found, nothing anybody they told them, made any sense. The car was 70 miles from Chico on a deserted and rut-ravaged mountain road. It had stopped at the snow line, and although its tires had apparently spun, the car wasn't really stuck. Five men easily could have pushed it free. The gas tank was a quarter full. 
Four maps, including one of California, lay neatly folded in the glove compartment. The keys were gone, but when police hot-wired the car, the engine started immediately, ruling out any trouble with the car. Both seats were littered with the wrappers of the food that they had bought at the Bears Market. Everything had been eaten except the Marathon Bar, which was only half gone. And the car's underside was undamaged. This heavy American-made car with a low-hanging muffler and presumably five full-grown men inside had wound up on a stretch of torturously bumpy mountain road, apparently in total darkness, without a gouge or dent or thick mud stain to show for it. The driver had either used astonishing care and precision, the, in- the investigators thought, or else He knew the road well enough to anticipate every single rut. The the family say that only Madruga ever drove that car. And the family say Madruga, who disliked camping and hated the cold, would not have known that road. None of the boys knew the road, in fact, as far as anybody could tell. Once, maybe eight years prior, Bill Sterling had gone fishing with his father at a cabin not far away, But he had not enjoyed himself, and he'd stayed home the few times that the Sterlings had gone back. Three years ago, Wire had hunted deer with friends in the Feather River country, but it was quite a way west of the area where the car was found, and his family says he wasn't really keen on the forest either. With the exception of Matthias, who occasionally stayed out all night with friends, Each of the lost men led mostly stay-at-home lives of such scheduled predictability that no one could fathom what, or who, might have taken them up that lonely road in the mountains. A storm whistled in the day the car was found, dropping nine inches of snow on the upper mountain. The search teams nearly lost men themselves two days later, as their snowcats struggled through the drifts. Nobody found anything, not so much as a shoe, until later the spring thaw, when on June 4th, a small group of Sunday motorcyclists wandered into a deserted forest service trailer camp at the end of the road and inhaled a nauseating smell. It was Ted Wire stretched out on a bed inside the main 60-foot trailer, frozen to death. Eight sheets had been pulled over his body and tucked around his head. His leather shoes were off and missing. A table by the bed held his nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, his gold necklace, his wallet with cash inside of it, and a gold Waltham wash, its crystal missing, which the family say had not belonged to any of the five men. Wire had been a tall, heavy-set fellow back in February, five feet eleven, two hundred pounds. But by the time his body was found, he had lost from eighty to a hundred pounds, and his feet were badly frostbitten. The growth of beer on his face showed that he had lived apparently in starving agony inside that trailer from anywhere from eight to thirteen weeks. He was nineteen point four miles from that car. Wire, wearing a striped velour shirt and lightweight green pants, had walked or run or been somehow taken in the moonlight through almost 20 miles of four to six foot snowdrifts to reach that locked trailer where he was found dead. The trailer had been broken into through a window. 
No fire had been built, although matches were lying around, and there were paperback novels and wood furniture that would have burned easily. More than a dozen sea ration cans from an outside storage shed had been opened and emptied. One had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener, which only Madruga and Matthias, who had served in the Army, probably knew how to use. But no one had opened a locker in the same shed containing enough dehydrated Mexican dinners and fruit cocktails and other assorted meals to keep all five of the men alive for a full year. No one had touched the propane tank in another shed outside either. All they had to do was turn that gas on, and they'd have had gas in the trailer and heat. All through the spring, the search for the boys had practically consumed Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers. He had gone to Marysville High School with Weir and his brothers. I'm sorry, Wire and his brothers, although he had not known them very well, and there was something about this silent disappearance of five strong men that haunted him like nothing he had ever investigated before. Leads were drifting in from all parts of the country. The boys had been seen in Ontario. The boys had been seen in Tampa. The boys had been seen entering a movie theater in Sacramento, accompanied by an older man. Ayers could punch holes in all of them. Skeptical but desperate, they consulted psychics. One told him the boys had been kidnapped to Arizona and Nevada. Another said the boys had been murdered in Oroville in a two-story red house, brick or stained wood, with a gravel driveway and the number 4723 or 4753. That's pretty specific, guys. For two solid days, Lieutenant Ayers drove every street in Oroville looking for that house. But guess what? It did not exist. Before long, he could rattle off their names and vital statistics almost automatically. Theodore Earl Wire, brown eyes, curly brown hair, handsome, beer-bellied, friendly in a trusting child's way. He waved at strangers and brooded for hours if they did not wave back. Got a good chuckle out of phoning Bill Sterling and reading from newspaper items or oddball names from the telephone book. Employed for a while as a janitor and snack bar clerk, but quit at the urging of his family who thought Weir's slowness was causing problems. Jackie Charles Hewitt, 24, 5 feet 9, 160 pounds, slight droop to the head, slow to respond, a loving shadow to Weir, who looked after Hewitt in a protective sort of way and would dial the phone for him when Hyatt had to make a, a phone call. Jack Antone Madruga, 5 feet 11, 190 pounds, high school graduate and army veteran. Brown eyes, brown hair, heavy set, laid off in November from his job as a busboy for Sunsweet Growers. William Lee Sterling, 5 feet 10, 170 pounds, dark brown hair, blue eyes. Madruga's special friend, deeply religious, would spend hours at the library reading literature to help bring Jesus to patients in mental hospitals. And Gary Dale Mathias, 5 feet 10, 170 pounds, brown hair, hazel eyes, 25, assistant in his stepfather's gardening business, army veteran with psychiatric discharge after drug problems that developed in Germany five years prior. By late spring, Ayers was dreaming about the boys almost every night. Once he woke in the darkness, arms outstretched, he had almost embraced all five of them. You do a lot of handshaking, he says, and a lot of drinking. Then, 
There was the man who saw lights on the road, Joseph Shones, 55, told police that he drove his Volkswagen Bug up that same road sometime after 5.30 the evening the boys disappeared. He said he was checking the snow line because he wanted to bring his wife and daughter up that weekend. His car got stuck in the snow just above the snow line, about 50 yards beyond the place where the mercury would be found. And as Shones was trying to free his car, he said he had a heart attack. Doctors later confirmed to investigators that Shones had indeed suffered a mild heart attack or infraction. Shones lay in the car with the engine on and the car heater going, he said. Sometime in the night, he heard what he described as whistling noises a little way down the road, and he got out of his car. What he saw looked like a group of men and a woman with a baby, he said, walking in the glare of a vehicle's headlights. He thought he heard them speaking. Shone said he even yelled for help, but then the headlights went out and the talking stopped. Shones got back into his own car and lay down again, he said. Sometime later, maybe a couple of hours, he saw lights outside his car windows. Flashlight beams, he said. Again he called for help, and the lights went out, and whoever was out there went away. Shones say that he lay in his car until it ran out of gas, and then while it was still dark, he walked back eight miles to the lodge called Mountain House, where he'd stopped for a drink before heading up the road. Just below his Volkswagen, in the place where he had heard the voices, he passed the Mercury Montego sitting empty in the middle of the road. The day after Wire's body's body was discovered, searchers found the remains of Madruga and Sterling. They lay on opposite sides of the road to the trailer, 11.4 miles from the car. Madruga had been part partially eaten by animals and dragged about 10 feet to a stream. He lay face up, his right hand curled around his watch. Sterling was in a wooded area scattered over about 50 feet. There was nothing left of him but bones. Two days later, just off the same road but, but much closer to the trailer, Jackie Hewitt's father found his own son's backbone. Ayers had tried to talk him out of joining the search, fearing something like that might happen, but Hewitt, whose first name was also Jack, had insisted on going. There were a few other bones around, along with Jackie's Levi's and Ripple-soled Get There's shoes. An assistant sheriff from Plumas County found a skull the next day about a hundred yards downhill from the rest of the bones. The family dentist was able to identify the teeth as those of Jackie Hewitt. Hewitt's remains lit had lain northeast of the trailer, like Sterling's and Madruga's. Northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, searchers found three wool forest service blankets and a two-cell flashlight lying by the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been turned off. It was impossible to tell just how long it had been there. They found no sign of Gary Mathias. His tennis shoes were inside the forest service trailer, which suggested to investigators that he might have been taken off or might have taken them off to put on Wheeler's leather shoes, particularly since Weir had bigger feet and Matthias's feet might have swollen with frostbite. But that was just pure conjecture and it's all they had to go on. State mental institutions received descriptions of Matthias, slender, dark-haired, double vision without his glasses. He was not carrying his billfold when he left the house for the Chico basketball game, so he had no identification on him. And if he was still alive, he had been without the drugs that he needed for at least four months. 
Matthias took his medicine weekly, as he had for at least three years. Stelazine and Cogatin, both used in the treatment of schizophrenia. His family says the illness appeared five years prior when he was in the army in Germany. Police records show he had become violent on occasion, he was charged with assault twice, and there was a difficult period after his return from Germany when Matthias would fail to take his drugs and lapse into a disoriented psychosis which usually landed him in a Veterans Administration hospital. His stepfather Bob would say he just went haywire. But for the final two years, Matthias had been working steadily in his stepfather's business and was taking his medication so faithfully that a local doctor who knew him called him one of their sterling success cases. He did collect army psychiatric disability pay, and he was enormously attached to his family, loved the basketball games he shared with the other four men, and listening to the Rolling Stones and Olivia Newton-John on the record player in the living room. I'm, I'm a Stones fan too, so rock on, buddy. Klopp said that his stepson took his medicine the week he disappeared, but he and the doctor say Matthias had not gone haywire in over two years. What they looked for all the time was his glasses, because they felt that that would be something that an animal would not eat. And Klopp, sitting in his dining room table, his voice is gruff. He's tired of reporters and tired of the pain and tired of not understanding what happened to him. Ida Klopp, across the table from him, says that she's not turned on the television in weeks because she doesn't want to find out that way. She continues to go back up there on weekends, back to see if they can find something that the searchers might have, might have missed. And there's just no place to look anymore, but she feels she'll find something. And they've had so many leads. In fact, John Thompson, the special agent from the California Department of Justice, who joined Lieutenant Ayers on the investigation, just calls it bizarre and has no explanations. You get a thousand leads every day, a thousand leads that go nowhere. They'd learned that a Forest Service snowcat ran up the, up the road to the trailer on February the 23rd, leaving a packed path in the snow that the boys would have been able to follow. They took on a water witcher from the town up north called Paradise, who said that he had fixed it so his divining wad would pick up traces of human minerals and then led the searchers to a deserted cabin near the abandoned car. There, they found a gray cigarette lighter, the disposable plastic kind, and about three-quarters of a mile northwest of the, tra the trailer. The families, of course, said none of the boys carried lighters. And they found that gold watch beside Weir's body. They discovered that Gary Mathias knew people in Forbes Town, which is about halfway between Chico and Yuba cities, on a road with a turnoff so easy to miss that anybody driving late at night might have ended up heading north towards the mountains and gotten lost. But none of this helped. The cabin found by the, watcher, the water witcher was empty, the cigarette lighter may have been dropped by a hiker, and the watch may have belonged to a forest ranger in the trailer, the trailer earlier, and Matthias's friends in Forbestown said they had not seen him for over a year. And suppose they had followed those snowcat tracks, Suppose that was how Weir made it through 20 miles of deep snow. The question becomes, why? 
Why abandon a perfectly operable car to strike out into the forest at midnight? Why press on through 20 miles of snowdrifts and darkness to break into a locked, unheated trailer just to die? Why drive all the way up there in the first place? And, and how? I mean, if someone chased them, why was the car undamaged? What were those whistling noises that they heard and the voices that Shones heard on the road? All of this just doesn't add up. There was some force that made them go up there, is what Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, says. They wouldn't have fled off into the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody had to have made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on all of these boys. We know it just, but we know it must have been, that they must have been taken advantage of. And Ted Weir's sister-in-law? They seen something at the game at the parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they saw it. And, of course, Klops can't understand why Gary would have been even scared. Even a fire, he says, all, the, all those paperbacks, and they didn't even build a lousy fire. They just can't understand why wouldn't they do that unless they were afraid. But he can't imagine what they were afraid of. And neither can investigators. They can't prove that there was foul play, and they can't explain it if there wasn't. And the worst part is they don't know where Gary Mathias is or if he died. They think he probably did and that his body probably lay on the snow until the spring thaw came and eased him down deep inside some thick green patch of the mountain. And unfortunately, 1978 to 2019, we still don't have any answers. And I'm sorry to say it, but with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me today. I do hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think happened. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And I know a couple of you sent me emails. I haven't had a chance to respond to them, but I promise you I do respond to every email, even if it takes me a little time. I promise I will respond. And if you do have suggestions for future shows, or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line. As you can see, I am very open to doing any kind of show you guys want me to do, so send me all your ideas. I am happy to do them. And on that note, that's all the time we have for today, my darlings. Thank you for joining us again here on Renegade Talk Radio, and don't forget to tune in next time. See you next time, my heathens. See you next time. We don't sugarcoat shit. This 